Right now on Matter of Fact, OBGYN residency programs are required to provide abortion training. I really think it's not about personal beliefs, it's about providing essential health care. Leaving medical students on opposite sides of the debate to consider their choices. I'm really committed to being an abortion provider, so I'm going to seek out that training during residency no matter what. I would go to a residency program as long as they had a conscience clause. I would choose not to learn a skill in which I intentionally kill a child. We explore the future of reproductive medicine in a post-Roe America, plus the four-day work week. Do you think we're gonna see more U.S. companies uh, take this up? Hear from the researcher who says there is proof that employees and their companies can benefit from working less. And a treaty signed nearly 200 years ago guaranteed a tribal nation a seat in Congress. Now their descendants are demanding what they're owed. It's an opportunity for the United States to honor its commitment it made to us so long ago. The story behind the promise made, but not yet kept. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. The Supreme Court decision repealing Roe versus Wade is having a bigger impact than just limiting access to abortion services. It creates an uncertain future for the tens of thousands of medical students who want to practice in obstetrics and gynecology. They are required to learn abortion-related procedures to complete certification. More than 40% of the country's OBGYN residency programs are in states that have banned abortion or are likely to do so. Our correspondent, Dan Lieberman, traveled to Wisconsin to see how medical students with very different views on abortion are navigating a post-Row America. When I heard that Roe v. Wade had been overturned, I was very happy to hear that. Ruby Gravrock is a devout Catholic and the third-year medical school student in La Crosse, Wisconsin. My faith is the most important thing to me, and it does impact every aspect of my life. And obviously medicine is going to be a very large part of that life. 23-year-old Ruby is considering becoming an OBGYN, but her residency would require training in abortion, a procedure she's firmly against. What kind of doctor would I be if I chose to intentionally kill one of my patients. The Accreditation Council, responsible for graduate medical training programs, still requires all residents get abortion training, but that residents who have a religious or moral objection may opt out. The council states that, quote, we feel that abortion or evacuating the uterus is a core procedure for OBGYN. It's also used for management of miscarriages and complications of pregnancy like infection and bleeding. So it's a technique that has to be learned. That is not an induced abortion. If a mother's life is being put in danger by her pregnancy, the fastest and safest option is to deliver the baby. A lot of times those patients, if we aren't um, acting in a timely fashion, can get significantly worse or even potentially have an outcome of death. I really think it's not about personal beliefs, it's about providing essential health care. Dr. Sadia Hader is an OBGYN and director of family planning at Rush University in Illinois, a state where abortion services remain legal, putting extra pressure on Rush's already competitive residency program. So you have six spots for residents here. I think we're over a thousand applications this year for those six spots. I mean, that's just yeah, staggering. I know. 
I made this map and color-coded it based on the state laws. Um, Fourth-year medical school student Zoe Schultz knows firsthand how tough it is this year. There's basically a bottleneck um, for accessing those spots. It keeps me up at night worrying about not getting adequately trained in abortion and ending up somewhere where I wouldn't have access to that training. Is it important to you to stay here and be a practicing physician in Wisconsin, your home state? Yeah, this is where I grew up. I would have um, found a lot of meaning in being able to fill the gap and increase access to abortion care in my state. They worry that if they go to a state that doesn't have all of the training available to them, that they may not be able to take care of people in need later. Dr. Laura Jacques is the Director of Medical Student Education for OBGYN at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She meets with students like Zoe who are navigating this new reality. There's a thought in this country that abortions happen in clinics like Planned Parenthood and that they're in this very neat box and by banning that procedure then everything will be fine, but I think many people don't understand the far-reaching consequences of this decision. Just wait. If you're in a state where you can't learn abortion care as part of your residency program, are you still going to seek that training elsewhere? Yeah, personally, I'm really committed to being an abortion provider, so I'm going to seek out that training during residency no matter what. If I'm in a place where abortion is not legal, I'm really worried about the moral injury that that would cause to me as a resident doctor by having to deny someone crucial health care that could be damaging to their psychological or physical health. The rule is to do no harm to both of your patients. If the option is kill one of the patients, how is that doing less harm? Do you ever think about a different specialty within medicine where you might not even have to face these moments? If we ran away from everything that scared us, what would that make us? And how would that leave my patients who need my care? I have thought about pursuing different fields, but I wouldn't feel as fulfilled unless I were working with women and children. For Matter of Fact, I'm Dan Lieberman. Next on Matter of Fact, the four-day work week is being put to the test even as companies face a labor shortage. There are critics who say it's crazy at this moment in time to be thinking about people working fewer hours. If anything, people should be working more hours. Why this economist says now is the perfect time to ask employees to work less. And later, the country's first 3D printed neighborhood is under construction in Austin, Texas. And we've got a question. How do you exactly print a house? Get a look at the mega-sized printer turning design into concrete reality. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. A four-day work week. It's not a new concept, but it's gaining more traction these days. The pandemic has changed a lot about how we work, not just whether it's in person or remote, but how much we do it. In 1940, more than 80 years ago, Congress formalized the 40-hour work week. It grew out of research done by automaker Henry Ford, who found that working more doesn't necessarily produce more. 
But America hasn't really followed that advice. Research shows that people have been working more than 40 hours. Now, as jobs remain unfilled and workers seek more work-life balance, one researcher thinks it's time we reimagine work. Juliet Shore is an economist and professor of sociology at Boston College. So, Professor Short, tell me a little bit about your study. Who was involved, how many companies, and kind of what was your strategy in your research? We had 33 companies from the United States, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. 903 employees who were part of the study, the companies that we're talking about, gave people a full day off, and they didn't reduce their pay. We didn't look directly at profits, um, but revenue performed really well. Compared to the previous year, the same six months, it went up by 38%. And over the period of the trial, by more than a percentage point uh, a month. The research shows that people are as productive in four days as they are in five days. Why do you think that is? I think the ability to be more productive is due to two things. Uh, the first is that before companies started these four-day week trials, they figured out what are the things we're doing that aren't adding value. Meetings are a big dimension of that. The other is that there are big well-being effects for people. Um, they're less stressed, less burned out, less anxious, happier, and that makes them more productive. There are critics, as I'm sure you're well aware, who say, hey, listen, we're, we're, we're in labor shortage right now. So if anything, people should be working more hours. The very first company that came into the trial had a mass exit exodus in June of 2021, and they just decided in August they're going to a four-day week, and they've had a fantastic experience. Part of the reason that we're seeing companies um, move to four-day weeks is it is a way to attract people. And I think the other really important piece here is we have so much new technology coming into the workplace. And so it does allow employers to offer these four-day weeks because the technology makes people more productive. I was surprised to see that this was not a new idea. Why has it taken so long to really be tested and maybe embraced? I wrote a book in 1992 called The Overworked America, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure. And at that time, there was a lot of sentiment for reducing work hours. Automation was going to free us up from doing so much work. But not too much long afterwards, we got into a sort of austerity and scarcity mindset and inequality increased so much. So we had a pendulum swing away from the idea that we should be using productivity growth to, to give ourselves some more free time. And the pandemic is what sort of upended that. Do you think then, if we are to redo this interview five years from now, that you will see a massive uh, uptake of this because I think it is stressful and I think it's hard for all the employees, myself included, right, to get everything done that you need to do, especially if you have a family and kids and a commute, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that five years from now, there are gonna be many more companies who are offering four-day weeks. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some legislation that had passed in some states. Professor Juliet Shore is a professor at Boston College. It's nice to talk to you, thank you. My pleasure. Coming up on Matter of Fact, the leader of a tribal nation is asking the U.S. government to make good on a promise. That's really about voice and re recognition and representation. How one sentence in this nearly 200-year-old treaty guarantees his nation a seat in Congress.
It's been nearly 200 years since the United States signed a treaty agreeing to give the Cherokee Nation a seat in Congress. But it never happened. Now the tribe, the largest in the country, wants the government to make good on its word. Last month, the House Rules Committee held a historic hearing about seating the Cherokee Nation's delegate. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, heads to Oklahoma to talk to the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation about the unfulfilled promise. Beneath the dome of the U.S. Capitol, in the hall that houses gifts from each of the 50 states, stands the legendary Cherokee Sequoia, a fitting representative of the state of Oklahoma and a reminder of a promise unkept. It's a very simple declarative sentence, but the United States wrote it and we're taking them up on the offer. The offer Cherokee Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin refers to comes from this, the bitterly divisive 1835 Treaty of New Echota. This is a document that's a source of pain. This is a document that represents the United States' betrayal of Cherokee Nation and the United States' betrayal of its own principles. The treaty was the final straw that led to the forced removal of Cherokees on the Trail of Tears. Some 4,000 Cherokees, almost a quarter of the tribe, died as the U.S. military drove them from their ancestral homelands west to what is today eastern Oklahoma. But the treaty, signed by the notoriously anti-Native President Andrew Jackson and ratified by the U.S. Senate, also contained a surprising provision, Article 7, which says the Cherokee shall be entitled to a delegate in the House of Representatives of the United States whenever Congress shall make provision for the same. After 187 years, the Cherokee believe that whenever is now. Why are we dealing with this almost 200 years later? Here's the way we see it. The President of the United States signed the treaty. His people crafted the treaty. The Senate of the United States ratified the treaty. Was it nearly two centuries ago? Yes, it's still the law of the land. It's now incumbent on the House to take that final action to fulfill the when Congress shall make provision for the same. It is stipulated that they shall be entitled to a delegate in the House of Representatives. This fall, the Cherokee got as close as they've ever been to seeing that promise fulfilled. For the first time ever, House members debated some issues still to be resolved, including how the delegate should be chosen. The Cherokee Nation has identified its choice, who would not have a vote in Congress, but would have a voice. What will be different when you are a seated delegate? Well, Cherokee Nation would have a seat at the table when making laws, formulating laws that will impact the Cherokee Nation, but not just us, right? It will be an extra seat at the table whenever we're talking about Native Americans generally. At the top of the agenda, funding for language preservation and education. Following the example of Sequoia, who first codified the Cherokee alphabet, the tribe recently opened a $20 million language center with immersive teaching for children and adults. These two things are coming together uh, at an important moment in history. Perhaps it's not coincidental, perhaps it's by design, but it's certainly, I think, driving home for all of us Cherokees that having a voice matters, whether it's in Cherokee or on the floor of the house. It's a voice now speaking up and determined to be heard. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Ahead on Matter of Fact, once a vacation spot for the rich and famous, the dried up remains of the Salton Sea are now poisoning a community's air. 
what it will take to help California clean up this toxic mess. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Matter of fact, update about the Salton Sea, California's largest lake. Last year, we reported on the shrinking lake, once fed by the Colorado River. The river is projected to decline 30 percent by 2050, and that leaves the people of California's Imperial County without a valuable water source for their farmland. Plus, particles from the dried-up seabed add to the area's air pollution. Imperial County has some of California's worst air quality, causing asthma and headaches and other health issues for people who are living nearby. Well, now the federal government will spend $250 million to clean up what's left of the Salton Sea. That money comes with strings attached. Initially, California will get $22 million for projects around the sea. However, the state must commit to conserving 400,000 acre feet of Colorado River water. The public utility that supplies the Imperial Valley must also help to meet conservation goals. Only then will the state get the remainder of the money for cleanup and restoration of the sea. Up next on Matter of Fact, last year, Habitat for Humanity decided to build a 3D printed house to address the need for affordable housing. To use their words, this could be a real game changer. How new technology is transforming neighborhoods. The country's first 3D printed neighborhood is under construction. The Wolf Ranch community outside of Austin, Texas, will have 100 homes, each powered by rooftop solar panels. The starting price is about $450,000. So how do you exactly print a house? A plan is loaded into a machine like this one, and a special cement paste is released. It's kind of like a toothpaste tube. Row upon row is stacked to ultimately create the house frame. The foundation, the roof, the plumbing, and indoor construction are all still built by hand. 3D printing construction companies claim these walls are more energy efficient and sturdier and about four times more resistant to wind and water. And it's possible to customize, like moving a door or window, right up until the moment before you print. A future 3D development in Virginia claims it will be the largest with 200 homes. And last year, Habitat for Humanity decided to build a 3D printed house as an experiment to address the need for affordable housing. Labor costs are donated for the Habitat homes. The organization says they want to build decent, energy efficient homes in less time with less waste. And to use their words, this could be a real game changer. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.